What is art? What is art? <laughs> this is the question I'll be asking today on this episode of the House of Decline podcast. Uh, obviously, the question, what is art, is broad and uh, difficult to answer and um, not really helpful in terms of there's no real practical or good answer to it. You know, the, the boundaries are constantly closing in and moving out and being redefined over years and years. But I, I find, like, personally, if you are an artist or somebody that is trying to do creative work, you know, even if it's to the very silly capacity that I do creative work, um, I think it's useful to ask yourself this question a lot because... Um, in defining your own creative work, having sort of rules or limits of what you will and won't do, even if they're totally arbitrary, do end up help shaping your creative output, I believe. I think assigning arbitrary rules to yourself in a way, uh, counterintuitively, can end up making you more creative. And these rules can be through craft, you know, you only adhere to a certain medium. It can be through philosophy. You won't depict a certain thing or you only depict a certain thing or, you know, these are large you know, sweeping examples. But I think every artist makes these decisions for themselves about, you know, what do they think is within the limits or bound of, uh, bounds of art and how can I work to live up to that? To use an example in literature, um, I always thought this was a great bit in Hunter Hunter. Um, uh, I, I always thought it was a great self-commentary on the artwork of Togashi himself, because in Hunter x Hunter, the way the the power system, it's sort of a shonen manga power system, but it's very sort of unique and elaborate. But part of the rules of the Nen system is that putting rules or strictures on your use of your power makes your power more powerful, uh, which I always, I always, in my mind, I interpreted that as similar to this philosophy of, uh, you know, creativity that I've assembled. Maybe that's a totally arbitrary connection, but I'm making it anyway. But yeah, um, and obviously, you know, these rules don't have to hold fast. You can change them from one day to the next. But, you know, thinking about what you philosophically want out of art what you want it to represent, how it makes you feel, what is its purpose, you know, these are all things you should be constantly thinking about. They have no one answer, and that answer is always subject to change, but um, when you're thinking about them, uh, I think you'll enhance your own artwork. Even if you're not an artist, even in everything you do, uh, you know, I think thinking about the moral and personal and aesthetic and uh, practical limits of what you do always behooves you, no matter what it is. So art, of course, in its broadest sense, is you know, any creative or uh, cre act that involves some sort of craft or development of craft, you know, it can be put in there. You know, even sports, you know, you could consider sports an art because it is about the development of a craft, even though it's a game. It does have the same ability to emotionally communicate ideas in the way that artwork does. You know, if you've watched a sports game, if you follow the freaking Minnesota Vikings, the John Boy's Minnesota Vikings series, you see the, you know, the agony of their persistence and defeat and how, you know, they were a team with an actual, you know, they had philosophy behind them. The Bud Grant philosophy is, is what sort of empowered the purple people eaters of the 70s. And so it, it was a... You know, uh, there's something to the idea of sports teams taking on that sort of 
communicative and expressive aspect of art. But, you know, you could extend that definition even further into, like, I don't know, medicine. You know, they call it the medical arts, of course. But, you know, there is some sort of qualitative craft or practice that uh, occurs with medicine as well, which sort of brings it into that world. It, it's more... Uh, I, and I think this is where we see the limits of art. Something that has a practical purpose or an end goal feels less like art. Um, famously in his uh, Video Games Aren't Art essay, uh, Roger Ebert said something about some, said something to the effect of the fact that video games have a goal. They can be beat. There's a purpose to it. Takes it out of the realm of art and puts it into game, you know, and you could analogize, analogize that to sports as well. Well, I don't think this is correct. Obviously, you know, I think video games are art. I think Ebert, had he been given a few more, you know, who cares? But I, th I think there is a seed of, I think there is a seed of truth in there. There is something about there being a practical purpose or an ulterior motive behind art where the purpose isn't just the communication of an emotional idea, but rather something to be achieved or attained besides the communication itself to win something or to, you know, um, in the case of advertising, which is what the rest of this episode is going to be dedicated to is, is about exploiting you, you know, um, there's some sort of goal other than the purpose of expressive communication, which somehow wrests it from the realm of art and puts it into the realm of something else. You know, maybe content is a good word for this. Something that does involve creativity and craft, but is ultimately uh, designed less to communicate and more to get you to buy something else. Uh, to exploit you is another way of putting it. Um, I've been watching a lot of Mad Men recently because um, uh, Mad Men is like one of my favorite shows. It's the fucking best. If you've never watched Mad Men, you should watch Mad Perfect. A wonderful, perfect show. Every season is good. Um, but um, uh, I, I guess I'll spoil some stuff, but pretty minor spoilers because no, this has nothing to do with the plot. All you need to know is if you haven't seen Mad Men, there's Don Draper, who's the suave, handsome, womanizing, difficult, sort of temperamental, but brilliant creative director uh, at Sterling Cooper. And early on in the season, he takes on a young woman. She gets promoted to copywriter called. She's named Peggy. She used to be a secretary. Peggy, she's really smart. She does well for herself. She's a brilliant copywriter as well. Um, and... You know, at first, she's just, like, grateful for the opportunity. But uh, over the course of time, as her talents develop, she starts developing sort of a, a sense of right and wrong. You know, what is it I'm doing? Am I doing something well? You know, Don struggles with this as well. He's always uh, having visions of uh, his father, you know, saying, you don't really do anything practical. Or, you know, he, he admits to people that his worst fear is that he's not really done anything with his life. He is sort of aware that while he is proud and dedicated to his craft, he's aware that what he produces is sort of this transitory thing that, you know, there it's something that doesn't represent the depth of art. And there's one, you know, very telling scene in my mind um, where sort of Peggy's complaining about, uh, something I, I forget the exact context but uh, 
Dawn says to her, she, she's like worried about the integrity of her work, essentially. And Dawn says to her, we're not artists, Peggy. We solve problems. And that's very interesting to me. That sort of, that phrase again, we're not artists, we solve problems, you know. While advertising does involve art, there is artwork involved, there is something beyond the communicative aspect of the artwork that takes it out of the realm of something that you could consider art. Um, And that is the fact that there is a practical purpose. There is a monetary capitalist purpose purpose at the core of it um which is really the true purpose of it the true purpose of it is not exclusively to communicate an idea but rather the communication of that idea is in service of getting you to purchase something it is uh you know it cares less about enriching your experience as a human or it cares about that uh in as much as it can then later exploit you (laughs) and um you know, uh, we can acknowledge pure advertising like this. I think, you know, even within our uh, pieces of art in the mainstream era, uh, mainstream film era, anything like a Disney movie or like a big blockbuster also has the ulterior motive of exploiting you. There's sort of a very telling quote from Michael Eisner in the in the 80s when he took over Disney. I think I learned this from a Lindsay Ellis video, but it's... Uh, <laughs> It's, it's very tell there's there I and I'm paraphrasing here but he says something to the effect of um, our goal is to make money not to make quality movies necessarily it just so happens that quality movies make money which is why we're going to make quality movies which is a it's a very funny outlook it's a very funny way to get to the idea of you know uh, producing something of emotional or social import. Um, we're going to do something good for the cash, which is, I guess I like that attitude more than we'll just do something bad for the cash. You know, we'll just, you know, try and rip and run people and produce low quality cultural artifacts, uh, for cash. I, I, I guess that is a, um, I'd rather have good quality products than bad quality products, but, um, you know, there is still at the heart of it, there is that little seed of exploitation. Well, like a mainstream Disney film is like, I don't know if you could quantify. These are arbitrary numbers, but like it's like 70 percent communication and 30 percent exploitation of of you and your children who will see all the little toyetic things in the movie and want to buy. And, you know, they'll force you to because you love them and they got big eyes and, you know, they don't have cash, so they can't buy it for themselves. Um, but um you know, all the Marvel movies have this, and you know the the toyetic quality has extended just beyond children. It's because now a, a, a huge portion of the adult population collects toys. You know, it's not a huge portion, but enough that you want to make everything toyetic now. <laughs> you know, if you don't know the word toyetic, it's a great fucking word. I love this word because it describes so much of our our commerce, especially with you know mainstream blockbuster films. Um is a toyetic, I'm quoting from the Wikipedia because I'm very, very fancy like that, is a term referring to the suitability of a media property such as a cartoon or movie for merchandising tie-in lines of licensed toys, games, and novelties. The term is attributed to Bernard Loomis, a toy development executive for Kenner, in discussing the opportunities for marketing the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which uh, Steven Spielberg Spielberg said the movie was not toyetic enough. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely not. You're... uh, 
What are you going to have a little playset of Richard Dreyfuss making the mashed potatoes? And of course, Star Wars was an extremely toyetic movie, which was the counterexample. Um, so, yeah, and toyetic is interesting because it always speaks to like that deep core of exploitation. You know, the movie isn't enough. The, the fact that it communicated something to you wasn't enough. There has to be something else to buy. There has to be some other avenue to get your cash. You know, it's not enough. The reason why we want you to develop an emotional relationship with this movie is because then you are way more likely to spend a lot of money on it. And if we sort of make it bright and candy-colored and, you know, full of uh, that sort of a, a lost innocence that we've all been yearning for, then, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, boy, howdy, it'll get it'll get its hooks in you and you'll want to buy those fucking products. Um, and thus we come to, uh, Barbie, a movie I just saw. It's great. It's a really good movie. It's really funny. It's like wall to wall gags. It's, I mean, that's what I really like about it more than anything else. It's just joke, 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 very high jokes per minute ratio and tons of them hit too. You know, this is a movie that is marketed towards sort of, um, it seems like it's it's like 12 and up is sort of the main thing. Those are the people who will get the most out of the sort of more adult references. But also, I don't know, I could see like an eight-year-old really enjoying this because I watched like The Simpsons when I was like seven or eight years old and half of the adult stuff, most of the stuff flew over my head. I just liked it because it was a cartoon. And I'm sure, you know, there are probably seven or eight-year-olds who will watch this movie, even though there's like, it ends on a pussy joke. <laughs> it ends with a pussy joke, which is great. You know, it's a great pussy joke. I love it. Uh, spoilers for Barbie, by the way. I'm sorry about spoiling the fact that Barbie ends with a pussy joke. Uh, and it's a really good pussy joke, too. You know, they knocked that fucking pussy joke out of the park. I gotta love that. Love that joke. Um, but yeah, uh, so Walla Wall laughs. Um, very like the the emotional sequences uh, are genuinely affecting, and that's when sort of the the sort of darkness. <laughs> the, I don't want to go too far, but the, there are these. It, the movie is mostly gags to its credit. It's mostly it's eighty percent gags. It's it's uh, just dense with them. It also feels like it's also crossing off a checklist for various products that they had for had to advertise and a bunch of rules that Mattel gave them and they're doing it in like expertly clever ways that I can't imagine that like brainstorming session where like Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbuch or you know they're like we have this list of 150 fucking demands from Mattel how are we gonna put it in there <laughs> um but the thing is the movie is an ad. It is a it is a very long ad, and you know the movie acknowledges this. Um, I think that's really what the movie does. It's a masterclass in lampshading. And if you don't know what lampshading is, lampshading is when you use a cliche in a piece of artwork. It's okay to use that cliche if you draw attention to it. That's if you, like, you, uh, say something like, well, that happened, but then you say, isn't that, like, something that assholes say? You know, suddenly your use of the cliché becomes subverted, and you've done this meta-awareness thing that endears the audience to you. 
um, because it's like, hey, he's we acknowledge that's a cliche too. It understands how we feel. And every second of this movie is that every second of this movie is like, we know they're always looking at the cameras. Like we know we're an ad, but isn't this fun? You know? And you know, they pull off a hundred successful jokes with this, which is, you know, frankly amazing to me. <laughs> it's really like the fact that they're, they're so able to consistently hit these like really successful. And, you know, part of the Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling are, are, you know, perfect in it. They're really good actors. They do their job well. Um, but yeah, so it's always this lamp chanting. It's always this turning towards the audience uh, and saying, you know, we have a meta awareness of what this is. That makes it okay. And I mean, that's what advertising is. That's what they say in Mad Men. That's what Dawn says. It's uh, th- what advertising is, is to let you know you're okay. You're okay. You're okay for liking Barbie. You're okay for liking Barbie. Don't you want a Barbie? Don't you want a Barbie? You're okay for liking it. <laughs> you know? Um, and that's what I find sort of interesting about the movie, too, is it so clearly shows, like, the demos that it's going after in terms of its uh, marketing because it uh, the premise of the movie is uh, Barbie uh, discovers existentialism because she's bound to a real-world person who's playing with her. In this case, it's America Ferrara, and uh, she has sort of a strained relationship with her daughter, uh, and uh, her daughter's this sort of uh, stereotypical sort of goth-woke tween who's very negative, and down she calls Barbie a fascist, one of the funniest jokes in the movie. It's been memed to death. Where she says, I'm not a fascist. I, I don't control the railways or <laughs> the flow of car. You know? And what's funny is, like, all of these jokes shouldn't work because a lot of these jokes are sort of these um, recitations of feminist theory. Like, they're they're just, you know, I, I, I guess it works every time because it's the absurdity of a Barbie, you know, reciting rapid th- feminist theory at you. It is like, that's it, you know? It's a funny joke. It's a good joke. It works. Um, but yeah, it always it's weird to me that this Sasha character, the, the little girl character, this sort of goth tween, it's like, Mattel, it feels like Mattel gave Greta Gerwig, okay, we're losing the goth tweens. You gotta make them feel okay about Barbies, okay? This is who we're going for. We also want to make adult women feel okay about playing with Barbies as well. And it felt very interesting to me because it's, I keep imagining this fictional, you know, cigar smoking Mattel executive in my head is like, okay, we got old men playing, we got, we got men in their 30s and 40s playing with action figures again. They're buying Funko Pops again. But you know who's not playing with dolls? Women in 30s and their 40s. How do we get them to play with dolls again? I was like, we gotta make a movie that shows that they have an emotional relationship to those. It's perfect. We'll get Greta Gerwig to direct it. She the little women. Everyone likes little women. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it, it's very interesting to me in that respect because this this Sasha character is first starts out sort of uh, you know cynical and damaged and you know woke and she's she's always. Um, you know, doing the sort of Gen Z uh, political commentary throughout the whole movie. But at the end of the movie, you know, she eventually comes around to Barbie. She's not allowed to hold on to her cynicism. No one is allowed to hold on to their cynicism because, you know, I guess that would make for a shitty movie. 
<laughs> you know, no one would want to see that. You wouldn't want to buy the product if, you know, the kid was still uninspired after seeing Barbie Land. But, it, yeah, that always strikes. By the end of the movie, she's, she's shed her black clothing and she wears pink now. And that, I don't know, that felt a little, felt mildly disturbing to me <laughs> in, in some ways. It's okay to like Barbie. You're okay for liking Barbie. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it really, it, there's even like a montage at the end of the movie which felt directly out of like the wheel episode of Mad Men where Dawn is infusing this, um, th- this sort of, this Kodak slide projector with his emotional moments of family memories. And, you know, he's explaining it so well uh, that uh, all of the Kodak executives are openly weeping in the meeting. And, you know, he's saying stuff like, nostalgia is a pain that you can never go back to. And car- Carousel allows it. I can't do a good John Hamm impression. Nick Mullen does a very good John Hamm impression. I can't do a good John Hamm <laughs> But, yeah, he says, you know, he, he, he talks in these words of how we, like, emotionally connect to objects. That's sort of a, a big theme throughout the show is understanding that people form these emotional connections with these brands you know they mentioned warhol once in the show at like some pretentious art show it's like why would anyone comment on advertising after war warhol which i don't know if that was you know them going back at their critics but you know that was like a lot of uh warhol was this the campbell soup cans are about how we form these sort of weird spiritual connections to brands you know as and, and by presenting them as art you know you sort of uh, subverted and elevated into you take away the pretense of it exploiting you even though Warhol was pretty exploitative and you just take the the emotional resonance of that advertising in Warhol's case it was the memory of you know being fed Campbell's soup as a child you know which is part of that emotional resonance of that brand recognition and they do that all throughout Mad Men so you know and Eventually, it comes to a head in one episode. Uh, Dawn is these are spoilers for Mad Men as well. In one episode, Dawn is uh, shot up with speed, and he's shot up with one of the John F. Kennedy co- speed cocktails. And you know he goes on a crazy ass meth binge, and he's not making any sense. And he's trying to find this uh, one ad uh, back from 1958 because he believes that it will unlock the key to all of advertising. And even on his meth binge, he says something to the effect of like, what is an ad? But, you know, it's it's time you take in between your entertainment. It's the little tithe you pay for your entertainment. But what if the ad, you know, and he doesn't quite get to this. It isn't phrased that way. But what if the ad becomes the thing, the pursuit of emotional resonance? What if the ad itself is the thing that provides you with the entertainment or the thing that, you know, allows you to, uh, you know, get into the past and get to your true longing or desire. In Don's case, the ad he finds is uh, an ad of uh, a, a mother uh, giving food to her child because you know just what he needs, which goes to Don's fucked up relationship with uh, matriarchal... <laughs> with mothers and you know which i won't go too far into you should discover that in your own if you haven't watched mad men yet but i think this idea is very you know don uh, there was a meme going around before the barbie movie came out of don draper uh scrutinizing a movie 
and it said me when I watched the Barbie movie. But I think, you know, Don Draper would be in awe of the fucking Barbie movie. I think this is, you know, this is the absolute fruition of Don Draper's meth-addled dream. It's, it's, uh, it, it is the ultimate ad because it manages to make you forget it's an ad through the constant lampshading or make you not care that it's an ad through the constant, like, good, well-executed jokes and constant lampshading. And it also manages to have these moments of, like, real, like, genuine resonance that bond you to the emotional quality of what Barbie is or what Barbie can mean to you if you if you experience Barbie in an emotional way. Like, um, there, there's only, like, three... There's three real pauses in the movie where the jokes stop, and they're very noticeable. One is where... Barbie gains sentience, essentially. She's uh, she's on a bench, and she's just sort of taking in the world and noticing the emotions and conflicts of the world around her, and uh, eventually ends with her turning to an elderly woman um, and her genuinely smiling and saying, you're so beautiful, and the woman says, I know that. And, um, you know, she is overwhelmed by the beauty of this world because all she experienced was essentially this life where she didn't really have free will. It's sort of, it's an innocence to experience narrative. And one that I think is directly marketed at the sashes in the audience is like, Hey, you're a tween, you're a 12 year old girl. You know, you're probably going through some stuff right now. You're developing agency and sort of seeing the fucked up in this, but also the majesty and the beauty of this world and taking it all in. So I think that is sort of like really designed to speak to that demographic. But, you know, you know, I, I, I uh, it's a really well, you know, Greta Gerwig, she used her whole fucking ass for this movie. She really did a really great fucking job. So many great visual set pieces. At one point, it turns into a Busby Berkeley fucking musical dance number. So many weird references. Like, I thought from the trailers when it would get to the real world, like, the production design would get less interesting. But no, there's a scene where they're at the Mattel headquarters, and it's great. There are all these, like, great, wacky, like, Seussian set pieces. Um, And uh, that's where, at the Mattel headquarters, that's where the second pause in in the... in the story takes the second emotional sort of weepy moment where Barbie discovers a room in the Mattel building, which is occupied by Ruth Handler, who's later confirmed in the movie to be the ghost of Ruth Handler, which is a very funny gag. I gotta say, but this is for Barbie. This is meeting God, right? She's meeting God. (laughs) She, she meets God or she meets she, or, or the Oracle, you know, some sort of, overseeing benevolent matriarchal figure there's also another reference to the matrix in this movie where she has to choose between the heel and the birkenstock from a lesbian coded weird barbie played by kate mckinnon uh (laughs) um and uh yeah so she she visits ruth handler played by rhea perlman Who's like I? It's funny to see Rhea Perlman uh, cast as this sort of angelic archetype when you know previously you know her know her as Carla Tortelli, you know the sharp-tongued cheers waitress. But now I guess as a grandma, she's ascended into this sort of comforting status, and she does a great job. I am comforted by Rhea Perlman. I love Rhea Perlman. She's great. 
and uh, casting her was a really good idea to cast her as Ruth Handler, um, who has this conversation with Barbie um, uh, early on in the film when where it is this sort of oracle from the Matrix sequence where she's in this kitchen and they're sort of having this abstract conversation about how she's changed and what she was doesn't really exist anymore and how that's existentially terrifying but Ruth Handler reassures her and then Barbie goes on and then it's jokes 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 the conflict in the movie is Ken discovers patriarchy and turns Barbie land into patriarchy because he uh, was sort of uh, uh, taken for granted by the Barbies is just a figure they give Ken his moment to but he's largely a comical villain his his problems aren't really taken seriously because it wouldn't be funny if it was genuinely it, the movie wouldn't be as snappy and funny I'm, I'm glad they don't take Ken's problem seriously because that's I mean, they do, you know, but not as much as they take Barbie's problem seriously, where she's given real moments of, like, genuine emotional pause where the movie slows down and the shots become all soft focusy, and, you know, shit gets a little real. And, like, the third most, and the third emotional moment comes right at the end where Barbie chooses agency, and she wants to become part of the real world. She, she enters a white void with Rhea Perlman, after uh, Rhea Perlman, uh, as Ruth Handler, reveals herself as the creator. And um, it's, uh, it's actually quite an affecting message because Barbie wants to be a real person. She chooses uh, the desire, because what Rhea Perlman says to her as Ruth Handler, if you're an idea, you live forever. But Barbie chooses death. She wants to become human. She wants to die. She wants to become messy because she sees it as more significant, which is, you know, very funny. She chooses art over advertising. She chooses sort of something uh, death-related and messy and awful and imperfect because it is that is the thing that creates meaning, you know. You can't create meaning as an idea, but you can create meaning as a person, which the movie, I think that's almost a direct quote from the movie. She wants to be the one that makes meaning. And then she sees this big, you know, Don Draper fantasy sequence of every woman in the world growing up and, you know, experiencing joy and sadness and laughter and togetherness and all the women are coming together and... Uh, you know, it's this, and all the women are Barbie too, and you can be human as well, but also, you know, buy, buy these Barbies as well. You know, uh, so you have this sort of tension where it's like you can choose to be anything, but also suddenly it's like if you buy this product, say, that you can choose to be anything. And, and the movies, you know, it, it's saying that to you constantly while also reminding you that it's saying that to you constantly. So you feel like you're clever uh, for the movie paying tribute to you understanding it's an ad. And I don't know. I, I think in these these emotional moments, you don't notice you're being sold something as much during the gags because they're genuinely amusing and because they're slight. You don't have to take it seriously. The movie is not asking you to take it seriously. Um, but during these genuinely emotional moments, the movie is asking you, to develop an emotional relationship with this product um and one that is like really really weepy and really um sort of overblown in its own way i mean the the other problem is they're good the greta gerwig did a really good job with these emotional sequences they're really 
genuinely affecting and sort of i think the the desire of barbie to be real um i now i'm gonna go off on a whole other tangent here i i don't know if i've talked about it on the show before uh but i really like the movie blonde i i'm not mr kino i'm not mr cinema i don't see so many movies a year but uh sometimes i'll see a movie because it has uh you know i liked andrew dominic's i liked uh the assassination of jesse james by the coward of robert ford so i was excited to see this movie i know it was by jco joyce carol Oates, the original book so you know gotta support jco and it had a lot of um backlash blonde people saw it as sort of exploitative or uh weird or anti-woman in some ways like one of the scenes that people were most offended by is there's a scene from inside Marilyn's vagina as a speculum enters it to do an abortion and it's sort of relationship with abortion like people had uh, uh or Marilyn's relationship to her children or people had took issue with but I I don't know there's lots to be said about it you know I'm not a woman I can't comment comment on any feminist stuff in it or nor am I a scholar of feminism but I found the movie great because it's a horror movie. It's a it's a sad sad movie uh, about being a tulpa. In in my view, this is what the movie's about. Or you know, Marilyn in in the blonde movie is never called. You know, she's always reminding people, "I'm not Marilyn Monroe." Like literally, she's Norma Jean, uh, but she's also you know not Marilyn Monroe. She's an actress playing Marilyn Monroe. You know, um, and. Uh, Oh, what's the name of the lady? She's really good. She was uh, in Knives Out. Uh, Anna Anna de Armas. Yeah, Anna de Armas is uh, Marilyn Monroe. Uh, and, you know, she she keeps, she retains a little of her uh, Hispanic accent, which I think is intentional on the filmmaker's part because it's always sort of reminding you that this isn't Marilyn. This is blonde. This is the idea of Marilyn. This is the idea of that sort of innocent, you know, perfect woman who is at once both sort of this uh, virginal, well, not necessarily virginal, but sort of pure entity or this angelic entity, but also this sort of a, the, this sex temptress as well. And um, throughout the movie, men are just constantly projecting what they want on her. She has no agency And, you know, this is referred to in Mad Men as well with the character of Betty Draper, these women who end up becoming sort of infantilized and controlled by men and sort of the nightmare of that, the nightmare of having no agency. And in Marilyn Monroe's case, in in the blonde movie, like, it feels as like she doesn't exist. And the only way she can assemble some sort of existence for herself is by allowing these men in her life to project what they want onto her. She is a, a blank in search of meaning uh, for herself, but she can't quite understand what that meaning is. So in or, um, or the sort of tragedy of this person that is created only to be exploited. In this way, I find it is akin to a character like Laura Palmer or Ray Ayanami, from Evangelion, who is this doll and who wants to know what feeling really feels like, but because of this, like, doll-like nature that she's been uh, given, you know, she can never really uh, even know what wanting meaning is. She wants to want meaning, 
but she can't, which is very, you know, that's that's uh, that's a very interesting thing. And I think Blonde underscores the tragedy of just never having agency and never being able to choose who you are and never being able to really choose death in a way because Marilyn didn't choose her own death for herself. It was sort of imposed on her. Um, but, uh, yeah, there, there's this, uh, you know, just, yeah, not having any choice is a fucking nightmare. And for women in the 60s, you know, <laughs> it, like like Betty Draper, um, you know, th- this is really underscored um, in Mad Men and also in, in the Blonde movie. Um, and these sort of uh, ideas uh, are refuted in the Barbie movie because Barbie chooses agency. You know, that is sort of the big emotional denouement of the movie is that Barbie is allowed to choose agency. And that is honestly... It's beautiful and affecting and genuine and lovely, but <laughs> it's being used to sell you fucking Barbies. <laughs> ah, it's so just maddening. It's you can never have anything pure in this world, <laughs> you know. There's nothing. There, there's always this thing behind it now. So. I guess I should also come to another aspect of this, which is selling out. You know, what is the concept of selling out? Nobody cares about selling out anymore. It was this huge preoccupation for Gen X and uh, even, you know, boomers before them. You know, there was this big concern with, man, I'm never going to join the establishment. You know, what do I do? You know, uh, the preternatural never selling out guys like Ethan Hawke in Reality Bites or something like that. Um, he's very, he's very sexy in that movie, Ethan Hawke. Um, and, uh, but, uh, millennials and, you know, fucking Gen Z, you know, it's like, they'll do their, uh, they'll do their woke YouTube videos and then they'll have the ads in the middle. It's like, support, is is my sponsor, here's the sponsor. And everyone acknowledges it because, you know, you live in capitalism, you're making, you know, media money, you know, you got to do ads, you do the ads, you got to do the YouTube ad. It's fine. No one will judge you for it. They'd be assholes for judging you for it. I agree. They would be assholes for judging you for it. But there's a line, you know, you don't do the ads for Lockheed Martin. (laughs) There's some ads you still can't do. There is, we still retain a concept of selling out to some degree. Only the bar has has been put much higher, you know, uh, in in some ways. But uh, yeah, I I think it's, uh, the reason for it is because obviously it's just a lot harder to not sell out now. Stuff was just way cheaper for for people in the 90s for boomers and for gen x people they could afford to you know live a life where they could abdicate uh, that sort of luxury or not you know work for the corporate eater there were more options to do that it seems like maybe i'm wrong about that but nowadays it's just like no you're just there's no way you can get out of it you know we're all part of the superstructure right you know we're all buying shit off of amazon we're all using amazon web services there's no escape from it so it's fine but it's not really you know we know deep in our heart we'd rather not be forced to do this if it were an option you know i would rather have the option of not having to do ads or you know i don't do ads i you know i've been thinking of uh, doing them but i always find it difficult and you know i've had 
the luxury, you know, I, I have, uh, had money that I've been coasting off of for a while that, uh, you know, allows me to not do that. And that's, you know, I would never judge you for doing ads or, I mean, well, of, of course it depends on the, ad. don't do the Lockheed Martin ads, but, but don't do the Raytheon ads. <laughs> But yeah, no one. If you're if you're a creator and you don't have access to yeah, do whatever you want. Do the corporate ad campaigns. Do whatever you do. Do what you need to survive. The world is fucking harsh and terrible, and you deserve money for being able to practice your art in any capacity. So, uh, to a to a limit. Don't once again. Don't do Lockheed. Don't do the weapons. Don't do Dow Chemical if you can help it. <laughs> Try not to do Dow Chemical if you can help it. Um. Yeah, and so uh, yeah, I think that idea of selling out has gone away, but at the same time, you know, our awareness of political reality has increased as well, which is is very interesting as well. And I I think it's sort of emblematic in this movie, which is is this shining beacon of woke capitalism, because it's always the executive character, you know. Will Ferrell, who in the previous movie that was a two and a half hour ad, the Lego movie, also played uh, a business executive. But in this movie, the executives are good guys. They want to, in some ways, they want to restore the order of the Barbie world. Or you know, they're they're not really taken to they're they are taken to task. They're lampshading. They say you know a bunch of men run this company, and it's but you know eventually they're not really villains in the end. No one's really villains in the end. There's nothing. You know, it's not a movie that wants to criticize this thing too much because it still wants you to buy stuff. You know, everyone is okay, ultimately, in the end. You're okay. Buying Barbie is okay. Um, So, you know, I don't know if we'll, you know, develop a sense of selling out again or a sense of conviction of selling out as big as Gen X or uh, Boomers had it, but... I don't know, maybe a little more skepticism <laughs> towards stuff like this is warranted. You know, maybe we shouldn't all just go embracing these things, even if they are brilliantly executed. You know, maybe it is sort of a loss for our general artistic oeuvre that we just accept ads as art now. Um, but I guess if you use your whole ass and you do a really, really good ad, you know, it, it doesn't matter anyway. And that's what's interesting about the movie. It's constantly trying to sell you Barbies, but it's always, you know, uh, you know, at one point, the kid, the Sasha kid lampshades the fact that it's a white Barbie by saying, oh, it's white savior Barbie in the movie. And it's like, ah, we get it. That's something you would have gotten criticized on, but you called attention to it in the movie through your Hispanic child character. So that means... It's good. It's good you called that before critics got to it. Lampshading. It's all lampshading throughout the movie. Um, yeah, you can forgive any problematic aspects if you draw attention to them. You can forgive any problematic aspects if you draw attention to them. Um, another, uh, like, uh, another huge demographic beyond adult women uh, who are represented by the America Ferrara character and the and the tween girls who have maybe outgrown Barbie who are being sought after for this movie. It's also men. This this movie is a huge demographic bomb in that this has potentially opened up this whole new market for Barbie merchandise that wasn't there before. I've seen plenty of guys buying the I Am Kenuff 
t-shirts. You know, I've never before seen straight men buy Barbie merch. This is an amazing, you know, uh, you know, uh, in terms of an ad, it's the greatest ad ever made, honestly. And I guess I'm just blown away by that. You know, I'm blown away by the craft of it um, in some respects because it really effectively executed what it set out to do, which was make it so that everyone felt okay buying Barbie merchandise. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's what's, uh, that's what's really interesting about it too, is that it's this big, from the very beginning of the movie, it says feminism, right? And the movie is explicitly about feminism and equal rights and sort of, uh, the difference between the fantasy version of it that Barbie purports and the cognitive dissonance, as they say in the real world of trying to live as a woman, where there are all these sorts of, uh, strange countervailing expectations, uh, for you that you can never quite live up to or be perfect enough. And, you know, you don't have agency, you know, that, you know, that's the bigger conflict in the, of Barbie's story is that as a woman, uh, you don't have as much agency necessarily as you would be if you, you had been born a man. And, uh, you know, that because it's taken away from you. Society, as the movie says, you know, patriarchy didn't go away. They just got better at hiding it, which you know, is true. It's true to some degree. You know, so I agree with the movie. The movie says a lot of political things that I agree. I happen to agree with, you know, uh, but uh yeah, and um, so that's what the movie is about. But the movie is also in in its own way about sort of empowering men as well, or empowering you know a, whatever little boy or whatever you know adult man would watch this movie uh, feels invested in these Ken characters because they have this sort of uh, relatable goofiness to them, and often they have the the funniest bits in the movie, like the Ken War is really fucking funny. <laughs> it's, that's, and like really well shot too. There's this astonishing 360 degree shot during the Ken war. It's like really, uh, man, Greta Gerwig really put her whole fucking ass into this. And it seems like she genuinely gives a shit about Barbie, which is, I think why, uh, the movie works so well, you know, even if it is this exploitative emotional thing, I think it seems like she genuinely believes in this, emotional connection you can have through generations of women through this weird you know fantasy doll you know the, through this little piece of plastic somehow you are connected to women worldwide and uh, not just women but you know men through this doll have uh, as seen through you know the eyes of women and it talks you know in this sort of female gaze capacity i i'm not qualified to talk about male gaze or female gaze but even though female gaze isn't really a thing, I I don't don't listen to me. But you know they say that in the movie, Ken Ken is only um, something in Barbie's gaze. He only means something in Barbie's gaze, which I think is a direct reference to male gaze or female gaze. Why wouldn't it be? Because it's you know the movie is already chock full of, of feminist lingo, um, and then Ken eventually discovers that you know his identity isn't more to anybody but rather he can choose life for himself. In many ways, he is the same arc as Barbie, is that um, you, you sort of need to go through this 
dark night of the soul or experience this sadness or existential doubt and really in order to create meaning or an identity for yourself or some sort of true uh, reality you know and um and i think this obviously this is a powerful resonant message that they pull off really well and i think uh, it works for whatever boy would be watching the movie as well i think they would uh it's it's less it's taken less seriously than barbie's story but it's still you know he's given an arc uh, the character is likable. He says funny things. You, you enjoy it. So uh, yeah, that's the Ken part of the movie, which is uh, uh, which is fine. Uh, the, uh, so there are precedents to this. I said I mentioned the Lego Movie before uh, as this two and a half hour ad, but the Lego Movie, to its credit, never. I mean, it does have an emotional moment with, like, Will Ferrell and a kid relating, but that's the one time the movie gets really serious. And that's also the one time in the Lego movie that the insidiousness of the premise becomes inherent, when it is, you know, when the little piano plinks come in and... We are relating to each other through products. We love our products. Yeah. (laughs) Um... Yeah, and I love the Lego movie, too, but, you know, I, I think as I look back on it, especially through the lens of this movie, I don't know, I sort of see the, you know, the dark underlying nature of this entire thing. Um, before Barbie, just the plot in general, um, it, it has it bears certain similarities to the Disney movie Enchanted, in which a Disney princess enters the real world and then slowly discovers the fact that she wants agency over fantasy. And uh, so I don't know if that was a direct influence on this, but that seems to be uh, sort of the, the big marketing push for like, okay, how do we recontextualize this Disney princess shit for like an audience of women and girls that are sort of savvy to their own exploitation now lampshade it was so that's so enchanted sort of invented that in a way is like how do we recontextualize this disney princess shit uh in order to make it okay for for people that might otherwise find it anti-feminist or find it disempowering it's just as long as we acknowledge that it can be anti-feminist or disempowering people will say it's like i know it's bad but they said they knew they were bad so it's okay for me to like it you know it's all this it's all the shell game constantly of trying to distract you from the fact that you're being sold something other than the pure communication of art. You know, you're being sold a Funko Pop. You're being sold uh, Heinz baked beans. You're being sold, you know, Dow Chemical. I mean, it's not as bad as Dow Chemical, but yeah, that I think is what. You know, and I can't, you know, say that Barbie isn't art. You know, I'm not going to make that claim, but it comes damn close to, you know, going across that line of, you know, really removing itself from the auspices of art by having that ulterior motive. The reason we want you to feel all of this emotion, all of this sense of agency, uh, all of this swelling pride at the idea of being connected to women and you know being able to choose your own path um 
Oh uh, yeah, and there's also a sequence where they uh, take retake over the Supreme Court, which is sort of this fantasy, but also this very sad, mo- <laughs> like mockery of the real world. Uh, they they change the Constitution again, which uh, you know I'm sure is uh, I'm sure some of this was at least partially inspired by uh, Dobbs. You know the Dobbs decision. You had to talk about the Dobbs effect. There's a passages in the Barbie movie devoted to it. That's how. And of course, why shouldn't it be this, you know, horribly traumatic thing for women? You know, why wouldn't it be expressed in this movie that is this uh, supposed to be uh, hawking this mainstream portrayal of womanhood? Uh, so it's yeah, it's still art. You know, I don't want to track from you, but it's also just kind of a fucking ad. It's not really art because it's not really designed to communicate it is but it's more designed to solve a problem which is how do we get these young goth girls these adult women and men to buy barbie products and greta gerwig solved this problem in astounding virtuosic fashion but i don't know it still kind of makes me uneasy I'm sure if it doesn't make you uneasy, that's fine. You know, I'm not judging you if you can accept this fully. You know, I'm sure there are many counter arguments to this. Uh, But I've been sort of thinking about this for a while. Um, And, uh, you know, I I just can't get it off my mind. You know, why have we why have we accepted these products into our hearts? You know? Don't we don't don't we want stories unmoored from products? Can't we just can't we have stories unmoored from products? Is you know you know on the other side of it you had Oppenheimer this year which I haven't seen which is a story unmoored from a product. Um, it was the other side of the Barbenheimer coin. Um, so I suppose you know that was that was good. You know, I, I'm happy it made a lot of money for a movie that's sort of long, boring, and talky. I should see it. I'm sure it's good. And I'm it, I'm sure it has less of that. You know, no one's going out to buy Oppenheimer Funko Pop. Actually, I don't know about that. I'm They might release an Oppenheimer Funko Pop, which is very disturbing to me. But I, I think it's safe to say that the movie isn't explicitly designed to sell you Oppenheimer Funko Pops in the way that the Barbie movie is designed to sell you Barbie Funko Pops. So, you know, that that's uh, a lot of what I've been thinking lately about this goddamn sellout culture. You know, it's not so bad. You know, I'm not, I'm not denigrating anyone for participating in it. This is the world now. You know, you have to, you gotta do this shit. But, you know, still makes me fucking uncomfortable. <laughs>